It's great to be here uh, with you again. Uh, I don't get the, the privilege of, of speaking to you that often, but I love when I get to. Um, and I remember the last time that I got up here, um, I said, hey, if you are into conviction, this is a Sunday for you. And I'm going to say the exact same thing this morning. If you are into conviction, husbands, this is a morning for you. Um, I... We are going to enter into Ephesians chapter 5, into a, uh, the, a passage, a famous passage on marriage, and we're going to be dealing with a section that talks directly to husbands. And I have to, I have to confess, um, I've read this passage a lot, but when you study um, to present something, the conviction that flooded over my soul was heavy. Um, and I... You know, I assume, you know, when they decided the preaching schedule for the summer and who was going to do different messages, they looked at the roster of pastors and said, who should we have teach on husbands? And they just saw my name and instantly said, clearly, this must be the guy. Or maybe they said, this is the guy who needs to study this the most. Or hopefully somewhere in between. But I confess my own conviction to you because I want you to know, husbands, that I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you as I preach this message. I am with you as I feel and sense conviction. And I want to encourage you, when you feel the sting of conviction that this is going to bring, don't turn from it. Don't run from it. Don't go to your happy place and tune it out and everything will be better. I'm going to have a ham sandwich for lunch and... Conviction is good. Why is conviction good? Because of that last song we just sang. Because he is good. He is good and he will never let us down. And when we ask him to do things in our lives, he will by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so I'm excited about what God has for us this morning. So let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And as we do, it's obvious um, when we get into this passage, the, uh, the application for husbands, but that doesn't mean that everybody else in the room gets to tune out. Otherwise, we would probably just dismiss you and say, women and children, just go home. We're going to give it to the men this morning, but that's not what we're doing. And, and here's why, because even when scripture speaks indirectly, it always speaks. So if you're a wife in the room and you're hearing about the godly call of what it means to be a husband, you should be thinking to yourself, how am I supporting and encouraging this in my husband? How am I uplifting him in his role as a husband? If you're a young man and maybe you're gonna hope to be married someday, maybe not, but you want to get married someday, how are the, the habits and the things that you're putting into place in your life, how is the relationship that you have with Jesus setting you up to be the kind of man that this passage calls husbands to? And young ladies, as you enter the world of dating and liking boys, hopefully you're not liking them until they're men, but as you're liking and, and getting into this, like, are you looking for the type of man that the Bible describes as a godly husband? Is that what you are attracted to? Is that what you see and say, yes, that is what I want? So we're going to pick it up this morning in verse 25. And if you're an astute observer, uh, you'll think to yourself, hey, wait a second. Brian Berger preached last week and he ended in verse 21. Why are we picking it up in verse 25? We're skipping something in there. And verses 22 through 24 are somewhat controversial, so we're just going to skip those. Okay? So... Um, 
That is not what we do at Redemption Church. Jeremy Olam is going to be here next week, and he's going to be uh, like, I have something for the husbands. He will have something for the wives next week. Um, and actually, he was supposed to preach today, but unfortunately, he had some um, funeral uh, things to attend to with an extended relative and his family, and it, it just would have really helped him for, for me to go. And so I said, uh, of course. He called me this week. I said, of course, I'll go. So if, if this is bad, you can blame him. But I am really excited to speak to you. And there's, there is, I, I, I said it already, but there is this tension and this nervous excitement because I feel the weight of this in my own soul. My wife over the weekend said, I wish they asked you to preach more often because you're really sweet when you preach. So, <laughs> well, honey, I'm studying how to be a good husband, you know. So it's having immediate impact. Verse 25, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word, so that he might present her to the church to himself, or present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying, or what I am saying, rather, I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's take a second and pray. <laughs> Father, I come before you and God, I just, um, I pray that you pour this passage over us. God, the implications of it, God, I pray that you move um, by your spirit and God, you bring conviction where there needs to be conviction. You bring encouragement where there needs to be encouragement. And Father, more than anything, God, I pray that we recognize and that you give the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us to be able to love as husbands like Jesus loves the church. Pray this in your name, amen. If you look at verse 25, we could almost just end right there. Guys, I just want you to go home and think about what it means to love your wife as Jesus loved the church. He gave his life. He died. There's nothing more that he could have given. He gave all. He laid all of himself down for us. What implications does that have in our marriages? What does that look like as a godly husband? Whenever we take to a, a passage and begin to read and begin to study um, we're always looking, I'm always looking for clues in the passage that would help us see the main point, the thrust, the, the center of the passage, if you will. And I, I don't want to nerd out on you too much, but in the original language, when you go back to the, to the Greek, you start to see parts of speech that stand out 
that give you clues and give you kind of, okay, where is Paul placing the emphasis? Where does he really want our eyes to be drawn? Where does he really want us to pay attention? And there's something interesting that happens in this text that going all the way back to verse 19 of chapter 5 and all the way through our passage, there is only one imperative one true command, one strong, like, like the strongest word that Paul says in this section on marriage is husbands, love your wives. You can almost see the, the, the section of scripture building up kind of to that point from both sides saying, do you want the foundation of a strong marriage? It has to be a love like Jesus for your wife. The foundation of the family flows down from there when husbands are loving sacrificially like Christ loved the church. And as we think through this and we talk about what marriage is, it would be good for us to take a moment and say, okay, marriage in our culture is defined quite differently than marriage in the Bible. And the, God is the author of marriage. It, it's, it's his so what is marriage? Well, verse 31 gives us a clue to what marriage truly is. Verse 31 says this, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That term, hold fast, in some, in some versions of the Bible is cleave. You've heard maybe the phrase, leave and cleave. A man will leave his mother and father and he will cleave to his wife. And, and that word has the meaning of covenant. That word literally means a covenant. And a covenant is this. A covenant is a deep and exclusive, permanent, legal, and personal binding commitment. Let me say that again. And ask yourself, does this sound like marriage in the world that we live in? A deep, exclusive, permanent, legal, and personal binding commitment. See, marriage is not about a declaration of current or present love. So often in our world, that's all it is. Marriage is simply, I love this person today, so we are getting married. God never designed marriage to be simply that. Is it important? Absolutely. I would never want to bring two people together and marry them who didn't express love for them on that day. But that's not what marriage is. That's not where it stops. That's not what it is limited to. In fact, the much deeper, much more accurate meaning of marriage is the absolute promise, the binding promise of future love. See, how I feel right now, loving you right now has to do with my feelings. How do I feel about you? Marriage is not about promising that I will feel warm and loving towards you all the time. No one can do that. Marriage is a binding promise about future love. It means that I'm not going to feel it all the time, but I'm going to be tender and loving. And I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve because God calls me to lay down my life for my wife. So you see how this is becoming, like starting to like churn up the conviction in your heart? Marriage is the binding promise of future love. When we contrast this with what the world says marriage is, we see something very, very different. And, and sadly, I mean, we have to be honest with ourselves, the world's definition of marriage has crept into the church 
at alarming rates. And there's no more telling statistic than just look at divorce statistics in the church and outside the church. They're very, very similar. So we must not be doing something right. We must not be looking at this passage and saying, that is what the foundation of my marriage is going to be. Because when the world comes together, they say marriage is about romance. It's about chemistry. It's about how I feel about you. And ultimately what happens in marriage, especially if we don't feel right in our marriage, if we don't feel good in our marriage, if we feel like this is not working for me, what it says is that we are not committed to God's plan for marriage. What it says is that we're seeing marriage a little bit more like the world does. There's a lot of ways you could describe this, but I call this the, the, the selfishness equation. Marriage is based on a selfishness equation. And here's what it means. I married you because I liked how I felt around you. I married you because you gave me things that I wanted. I married you because you made me feel better about myself. Now that we've gotten into marriage for a little while, I don't feel that way anymore. In fact, without even realizing it, people would never say this. We would never con confirm this. We, we would never go, yeah, oh yeah, that's absolutely what I want to do in marriage. I want to go in there and be as selfish as I can. And when she doesn't give me what I want anymore, I'm out. No one would go into marriage saying that, but we treat marriage like that. We come into marriage and we go, okay, I feel good about this. I like what I'm getting out of this. And then the question starts to ring in the head. Would I be happier not in this marriage? Would I get more of what I want without him around or without her around? Do I need her to get what I want anymore? This is the opposite. This is the opposite of the self-sacrificing love that the commitment, the covenant of marriage is based on. And maybe you're here today and you're feeling that tension. You're feeling that tension in your marriage. You're a husband and you feel like you're drowning. You, you feel like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I want to tell you, God desires that you would be committed to his plan, his design for being a husband. That you would find in him the strength to selflessly love your wife. We want his definition for marriage, not our definition for marriage. So in Ephesians chapter 5, 25, we are called to love. And as he moves on in this passage, like I said, things are pushing back towards verse 25 and describing what it means to love with the selfless love of Christ. And, and I don't want to... Um, I don't want to take anything away from verses 26 through 33 because they are deep and have incredible imagery in their own right. But I want to focus on 25 and just work our way back to it using some of the illustrations that Paul does in 28 and 29 and 26 and 27 to give color to it. So look at verses 28 first. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does for the church. Now, as I look around, I see that this comparison of love, this illustration of how well we take care of our own bodies might be lost on some of you. <laughs> We're not all that smart. It took a couple of us a little while to get that. It was a joke. Hey, it's me too. I'm right there with you, men. My wife married a svelte 142-pound man. It was me. 
this is not 142 pounds. So I got married young. I'm filling out. That's all. You fill out after 40, right? This isn't about how well we take care of or don't take care of our body physically, although that is an important topic for some other time in some other context. This is about how you treat your own body, and there's three principles that I see that all of us would have to admit, okay, yeah, I absolutely do that, that should push us in the way that we care for and look at our wives. And so let me give you three things that we do in regards to our body. We provide, we protect, and we give rest. We provide, we protect, and we give rest. It's what the Bible there is calling the nourishing and cherishing of our body. Well, what does that look like? It means that we provide. We don't walk around starving ourselves. We put food in our body to nourish ourselves. We provide. So men, how do you provide for your wives? Does your love, does your self-sacrificing love bring provision? And I'm not talking just about financial provision. Talking about emotional support, the provision of emotional support, the provision of good conversation, the provision of loving and laying down your life. Does your love protect? We protect our bodies. We don't want to die. We don't want to get hurt in some massive way, so we protect. And I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, no, I protect my wife. I lock the doors every night and I've got a gun on my night table. That's not what I'm talking about. That's one aspect of protection. Do you protect her joy? Do you protect her happiness? Do you protect the peace in your home? And then we give rest. This one, this one got me when I thought about, you know, that is one thing that all of us do for our bodies. We give rest. I, I, I love my wife dearly, and she loves me, I'm pretty sure. But I am a guy who's pretty sarcastic, and I like to pick on her. She doesn't like to be picked on. I immediately thought of this when I thought about giving rest to my wife. And so maybe the question is, what things in your life are you doing that stress your wife out? My wife came to me the other day, I don't even know why I'm sharing this. And says, Matt, you do this really weird thing. And I go, and she goes, and it stresses me out. And I go, stresses you out? She goes, yeah, you stand there sometimes and we'll be talking and you'll do this. I just don't like that. So what did I do? Every time I saw her the whole day. <laughs> now that's a stupid example, but the question should be, what things are you doing in your life that are bringing stress to your wife? Are you, are you a person who provides rest and peace for her in your love as you lay down your life and sacrifice? So look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There is so much in there, but the, the beautiful, incredible picture and imagery is that marriage is supposed to be this partnership with Christ where we encourage one another to become more like Jesus. What is the purpose of Jesus coming into your life? Let's remember the gospel for a second. Just a few chapters ago in Ephesians chapter two, we went over it, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were flawed, fatally flawed spiritually. We were never going to be capable of a relationship with Christ. We were never going to be capable of spending an eternity with him in heaven unless he acted, unless he did something. And the major admonition or admission there for us is that we were flawed. 
We were messed up. We were broken. We were sinful. We did not deserve a relationship with him, yet he came, and he came to us, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, be raised again, that we could have new life in him. Amen? Why would we not have that same admission in marriage? I'm wicked. I'm flawed. I am not the way that God designed me to be. And Christ, when he loved the church, didn't just come and die for the church and say, all right, I'll see you when you get to heaven. He didn't just come and say, okay, I paid for your sin. I got the righteousness thing figured out. You're gonna be good. I'll see you when you get to heaven. No, he loves us so much more than that that he wants us to become more like him. He created us. He designed us. He knows what satisfies us. And so therefore, he wants us to live that satisfying and joy-filled life. He wants to purify his bride, the church. And we in marriage should seek to purify one another. You go, wow, that sounds really heavy, really lofty. No, it's this simple. We should push each other, pull each other, encourage one another towards Christ. And the Bible says, husbands, you lead the way in this. Well, how do you do that? You lead the way like, by being like Jesus, You're gentle, you're kind, you're loving. And yes, you follow through with conviction. And there'll be times where you'll have to call out sin, but we're both called to do that. Why in the world would God not use the most intimate human relationship that we get to experience on earth to help in the process of becoming more like Jesus? If he wants us to make Romans 12 to a reality that we would no longer be conformed to the world, that we wouldn't think the way the world thinks, we wouldn't act the world way the world thinks, but we would be transformed to the likeness of Christ, why would he not use marriage in that process? And why would he not call husbands to lead the way in acting like Christ in the process of sanctification? We're called to lay down our lives, lay down our lives to push and pull and encourage our wives, to be like Jesus, to show them what Jesus looks like by our love and our sacrifice. And we're called to provide, to protect, and to give rest. See, marriage is this uniquely intense form of Christian fellowship or biblical community. It's seeing someone as they are and loving them, but saying, I love you. And I also love the fact that you are not where you're supposed to be and God gives us the privilege of trying to go there together. And you might say, okay, that is really high, that is up there, that is lofty, that is, that is big. Let's get practical. How do I go home and do some things today to be a better husband? Well, let's ask this simple question. If we're supposed to love the way that Jesus loved the church, then how did he love the church? What did Jesus do? When I started thinking about this question, I came up with a list of 20 things that Jesus did for the church that got really, really narrow. I'm not going to give you 20. We'd be here all afternoon. I'm just going to give you three. And I'm sure there's a ton more than that, but these are the three that I have for you. And here's, here's the deal. These are, some of these are born very much out of personal conviction for me. So I understand that they may not hit everyone exactly the same, but I'm going to try and be transparent, and that might make me look really, really bad. But I don't really care because my identity is in Christ, and he covers my sin, and like we started with, his mercy is huge, and his grace reaches down to me. So here's the first thing. What did he do for the church? He came to this earth for the church. 
Now, on the surface, that may not sound like a lot. But if you look at Philippians chapter 2, it talks about how in coming to the earth, what he gave up, what he emptied himself of. When I first got married, I understood the passage in Genesis 2.24 that said my wife and I were going to become one. But real, in real, being very real with you, when I look back on that, I, I wasn't thinking this at the time. This was subconscious and just something that was built into me as a prideful, egotistical man. I thought that becoming one meant that really she was supposed to become more like me. Anybody been there? Oh, no, raise hands. Oh, okay, I gotcha. Like I said, I was not actively thinking this. It's not like I set out in my mind, I gotta make her more like me. It's just I realized that's what I was doing. Like I'm evaluating it and I had this come to Jesus moment about five years into marriage and just felt like a schmuck. Like I I thought that that was part of my job. She's supposed to become one by becoming more like me. I'll help her become more like Jesus and be better by becoming more like me. I was young when I got married. But I know I'm not alone in at least demonstrating that sometimes. And then I realized this. That is not the love of Christ. That's not what he did for us. That is not what he did for you. That's not what he did for me. God, God became like me to love me. I, and I don't know if you understand all the ramifications of that or, or what the depth of your theology is, but the God of the universe became like me because he wanted to show love to me. And I'm trying to make my wife become more like me? That's ridiculous. So the question born out of that is what, um, what are the areas of your life where you could move towards your wife, husband? What are the areas of your life that you could give up or surrender or lay down in an effort to move towards your wife. Like God moved towards us. This beautiful word, Emmanuel, that we talk about at Christmas. God with us. God came near. How are you moving to nearness with your wife? That's a huge, big, emotional thing for me. And I, I hope that I don't trivialize it with these stupid illustrations. Because sometimes the big existential ideas, they have to come down to very small moments. I recognize that God had done this in my life in different ways, and they're really silly. But man, they're the silly things that show love, and they're the silly things that help you have a better marriage. And when we talked about all that sanctifying stuff and like we're there to kind of change each other and, you know, push each other towards Christ, you know, man, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I got married because I wanted to have fun and have romance and have friendship. Fun, romance, and friendship are so much deeper, so much deeper when we can honestly talk to one another. And so for me, when I think about moving towards my wife, when I got married, I, uh, my, I found out that my wife liked to sleep with the fan on high um, all every night and at first we got married and it was the summer and it was kind of hot and I thought oh okay we don't really have AC not here we lived in the Midwest that would be terrible if we didn't have AC here I, you know I thought well maybe this will go over in the summer and then it got into the middle of the winter I'm going oh no 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 this is a year round thing <laughs> the, the fan is at the end of our bed oscillating and blowing and back then I had hair and I'd wake up with chapped lips and my hair flown back and 
And I was just like, this is brutal. So what am I going to do about this? God in his grace and in his mercy, I like the fan now. I snuggle in. It blows all over me. I put chapstick on. And we're good to go. And I enjoy it. I mean, I really, really do. And my wife and I now have gotten to the point where we've had conversations about it and laughed together about it, that those, that those are stupid, simple things. When I got married, I hated country music. It was part of who I was. I hated country music. Every, I, you knew I hated country music. Well, guess what? My wife loves country music. So now it's, I don't just tolerate it because she likes it. I actually have changed. I actually have moved towards her in something stupid and simple, and it makes our relationship better. Simple things in life that you give up. See, the world touts individualism, that you need to hold on to you. You have to protect you. You have to look out for you. Your identity is who you are. You got to be you. That is not biblical at all. We're supposed to lose ourselves in Christ. All of our identity is supposed to be in him. And he says, if you lose your identity in me, you're supposed to lose it in your wife too. You're supposed to give up yourself to her. It's a beautiful thing. And it's so much better. It, I mean, I, there are times when I think about my relationship with my wife and I really do feel like I have this secret. Like when things are going well and I'm not being an idiot. Like there's this, this secret to happiness. The secret to joy in my marriage by laying down my life. And I feel like an idiot when I go back to being selfish and prideful. He came to the search for the church. And secondly, he is the head of the church. In love, in self-sacrificial love, he came to this earth and he is the head of the church. Now, I almost didn't include this because with Jeremy and I flip-flopping passages, when I was thinking through this, he was already gonna have spoken to the wives and kind of talked about this idea, this concept of headship. And I don't wanna step on his toes too much, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk to the husbands about what this means. Because I assume Jeremy will talk to the wives about what it means in their response from their perspective. Headship can be a scary word, and I kind of used it on purpose. It is a biblical term, and it is a very unpopular term in our culture today. But it's unpopular because we don't understand it, because we don't see the beauty of it, because we don't look at the demonstration of Christ in headship. We look at the demonstration of some idiot dudes and what they think headship is. Headship does not mean that you are the boss. Well, headship, if I simplify it down to, you know, as, as simple as I can get, does mean that you have final say. Here's the question. When would you ever express the final say? When would you ever disagree with your wife to the point that you feel like you need to claim some level of headship? What's the whole point of Jesus' love? The whole point of his love is to lay down his life for who he loves, the object of his affection, the object of his love. If my wife is the object of my affection, I have the incredible responsibility and opportunity to represent Christ's love to the church by laying my life down for my wife. And so what it means is this, that the husband should never, would never exercise headship to please himself. Christ would never do this. The husband must never do anything just to please himself. He always will put the needs and the desires of his wife ahead of his own. 
Headship means that you would only ever overrule or assert some level of headship in a situation where you and your wife are working through a situation and you feel the direction that might be heading, the direction you might be heading would not be good for her. It would not be good for the family. It would not be something that draws her and you closer to Jesus. Are there tough decisions in life? Yeah. But understand, husband, that you have this weight to headship, that you're demonstrating the love of Christ in your headship, that you are sacrificing yourself for your wife. Even in the moments where you have to make some level of a difficult decision for the guidance of your family, it's out of sacrificial love. That's a lot to consider. That's a lot of weight. So Christ came to this earth for the church. He is the head of the church. And then finally, to even put a little bit more um, definition to what it looks like, we'll kind of end where we began. He gave his life for the church. He gave his life for the church. Now, I... I don't want to minimize, I know that I've been talking a lot about sacrifice and laying down. I I don't want to minimize the leadership role that a husband has in sometimes making difficult decisions. But I also would hate to minimize, and maybe, again, like I told you, this comes from my own conviction. Like, I don't want to minimize what it means to lay down your life because so much of my early marriage was not about me laying down my life. It was about me pursuing what I wanted and trying to make her come along with me. That's not good. It's not okay. He gave his life for the church. I would submit to you, I would tell you that most conversations that start in disagreement should end in the husband laying down his life for his wife and serving her. So what does that mean? What am I saying? I'm saying that the, uh, the color of your bathroom is not an issue of leadership in your home. You go to a car lot, you've saved your money, and your wife wants a red car, and you want a blue car. And you say, well, you know, Ephesians 5.22 says, and she says, well, you know, Ephesians 5.25 says, uh, and this comes quite a bit short of dying for me, so you get the red car. You joyfully lay down your life. You recognize what Jesus Christ has done for you, and you say, I want to do the same. Now, in a, in a beautiful picture of a biblical marriage, you have the wife and the husband doing this. Like, like, no good love story is written like this. Two people fall in love and they get married. And then they go pursue their own things and they fight about getting what they want out of the marriage. No, beautiful love stories, even in the world's eyes, it's so um, ironic. It's so ironic because they don't do this. But beautiful love stories, even in the world's eyes, are written. Two people love each other and then they battle and compete to prefer one another. No, 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 you should get what you want. No, 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 in this stupid, simple decision, you should get what you want. Marriage is full of compromise, but sometimes the wrong kind of compromise. It's full of compromise because we were fighting for our own way and figured we had to compromise to stay together. Instead of the opposite, fighting to prefer each other and compromising out of love for one another, true love for one another. My wife loves to have pretty things in the house. She's not super girly, so it's not like doilies and all that kind of stuff, so I am blessed in that. But she, 
she likes things that she would consider pretty. And I'm more of a guy who really likes, uh, you know, animal heads on the wall and things like that. So in our kitchen, as weird as this might sound, in our kitchen, one of these conversations that was actually a great conversation, we laugh about it now, we love what it represents, we have a plastic, a giant plastic bear head hanging in our kitchen that she painted gold. So it's pretty and it's manly. We fought to prefer one another and we ended up with a giant gold bear head. Now, it's not always that simple. I get it, right? It's not, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it is just those simple gestures of I love you and I want to prefer you in this thing that doesn't matter a lot. Because you know what? I know that there's gonna be coming in our life some things that are a lot more important than that, that we are gonna have to have serious conversations about, that, I, that as a husband I might feel God is really calling me and leading me in this direction. And I want you to know my sacrificial love for you. Jesus loves us. I kept getting overwhelmed um, in studying this with, okay, how do I do this? How could any of us do this? I had this written in my notes. I'm going to tell you, you know all this stuff we talked about, husbands? You can't do it. You can't do it. All right, let's pray. That would be a terrible way to end. You can't. But Jesus can, and he did. And I want to submit to you that the only way, husband, that you will love your wife the way that Jesus loved the church is a nearness to Christ. And I, do not, do not underestimate this. Do not go, well, I expect you to say things about Jesus, we're in church. I'm not talking about knowing about Jesus. I'm not talking about reading the stories of Jesus and seeing what he's like and trying to, to put those principles into play in your life. I'm talking about a nearness to Christ. Oftentimes in my life, and I dislike it when she does it, but my wife will tell me, you sound just like your dad. Any wives out there ever say that? To? I love my dad. I don't even know why it bothers me. Maybe it's because I want to be an individual. Maybe it's because it's about some old school thing that I sound like an old fart and I, and I just don't want to. I, I don't know, but it bothers me. But I can tell you why it happens. It doesn't happen because I read a book about my dad. It doesn't happen because... I, it, it doesn't happen because my dad wrote me a book and said, here's the way that you should do things. Why don't you read it? It happens because subconsciously I've spent so much time with my dad. I've seen him react to situations. I've seen him and I've watched him and all of a sudden it comes out of me. Do you have that type of a relationship with Jesus? Because if you don't, you will not be able to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church. Do you walk with him? Do you talk with him? Are you honest with him? Do you allow him to point out the, the deep-seated selfishness in your heart? Husbands, this is what it takes. I was having a conversation with a, an older gentleman who goes to our church. A guy who I've been friends with for a very long time. A guy who's been a mentor in my life. Um, who's not doing super well physically. Um, but he has a ton of experience in marriage. And we were over uh, at his house shooting the breeze and we were just talking about life. And at a certain point, I just asked, hey, what's going on in your life? What's, what's new? What are you doing? And he said, you know, he goes, lately, I've just really been trying to be a good husband. And it's really hard. That was so 
inspiring to me because this man who I respect, this man who I know has done so many things really, really well is saying this simple thing. I'm not giving up. I'm just trying to be a really good husband and it's really hard. Why? Because the disease of self that started in the Garden of Eden is alive and well in me. And it's alive and well in you. And the only way, the only way to combat it is a nearness to Christ where you allow him to form you and shape you and you see him and you talk to him and he softens you and you go back and you tell your wife the things that God is doing in your life and the ways that he is showing you your own selfishness and the ways that he is caring for you. And all of a sudden you begin to see yourself become more like Christ, selflessly caring for her and loving her. You want to be a godly husband? Get near to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much um, for your word. God, thank you so much for caring about us enough that you didn't put us here alone. God, you gave us companionship. You gave us the incredible gift of marriage to enjoy. And God, thank you for your instruction. But God, most of all, thank you for your love. Let it inspire us as husbands to love the way that you do, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.